BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a house. It's your home, the place that's filled with memories. The early days of figuring it out to the later years of still figuring it out. For the place you've put down roots, trust Amica Home Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy. Episode 154 of The Bowery Boys. New York in the golden age of television. Hey, it's The Bowery Boys. Hey. The Bowery Boys is brought to you by Eurocheapo.com. Eurocheapo's editors inspect and recommend the best budget hotels in Europe. On the web at Eurocheapo.com. Hi there. Welcome to The Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. With part two of The Bowery Boys' look at the history of television through the landscape of New York City. Part two of our summer of 2013 TV miniseries. Now, our last episode was on the birth of television itself, the actual device. Right. We covered two types of television, mechanical and electronic. Mechanical would bite the dust, and and electronic television would be adopted by the, the networks at the time, those networks being NBC, ABC, CBS, and DuMont. I greatly enjoyed that episode, Tom, but I feel like we were have been sort of chomping at the bit to do this episode, which is New York in the late 40s to 50s and 60s, also called the Golden Age of Television. This one's more about television production or the actual production of television shows. Therein lies the problem, of course, because there are hundreds of television shows being produced here in New York and in Los Angeles and, and in other places. And thousands of episodes. So we've decided to approach this in a very different way. Now, I know that some of you like to use our shows as walking tours because you can go to a place that we talk to and actually listen to it, and it works pretty well as a walking tour. In this case, we've chosen four places in Midtown Manhattan that you can walk to very easily and showing the history of New York and the golden age of television through those places. And these places were the studios. Many of these were theaters and are still theaters today. So we'll be taking you to the buildings and talking about the actual shows that were produced inside. So stay tuned for New York in the Golden Age of Television. Jackie Gleason. The Honeymooners. With the stars Art Carney. Audrey Meadows. And Joyce Randolph. 
So how did you like that loungy, glamorous number? It was lavish. That, of course, was the theme song from The Honeymooners, one of the great Golden Age television shows that was produced in New York City. And you're teasing us because you're not going to tell us yet from, from where it was broadcast. That will be revealed later in the show. So, Tom, bring us up to speed here in the late 40s, 1950s. Like, where are what are TV habits? Like, what's happening with the TV industry on a general level? Sure. Well, when we left off in the last episode, TV was really uh, starting to take off at the end of the 1940s. Remember that during the war, there wasn't much happening on television in the United States. TVs weren't really getting out there. They weren't being made. Those that were out there were super expensive. So by the end of the war... A few things had changed in American society that led to this perfect moment, really, for TV to explode into American culture. It really is like a perfect storm because after the war, people had more money. They could right. manufacture more television. Right. And they could manufacture more cheaply because mm-hmm. of new technologies and new materials that went into these televisions. So the price dropped dramatically, and people had a lot more money. This was a boom time. The 1950s was a boom time. And people also had more leisure time. Don't forget that there were all of these other innovations in the home that led to less household work. For example, the washing machine, the dishwasher. Which creates, of course, the idyllic nuclear family of the 1950s. Right, right. because of course this is the period of flight from big cities out to the suburbs. So Mm -hmm. even the suburbanization of American culture, you had a situation, it's a bit of a cliche, but you can easily understand that a situation where you have millions of people buying homes out in the suburbs, not spending their times like on their blocks in the cities, but Mm -hmm. out in the suburbs at a certain point in the evening, they, well, don't have that much more to do except to (laughs) sit around as a family and watch television. So TV was really accommodated by a lot of the cultural changes that were happening. In 1946, only 0.5% of American households had a television. Half a percent. Mm -hmm. By 1954, 55% of American homes had a set. And by 1962, 90% of American homes had a TV set. And I was thinking about this this morning because it's such a dramatic shift to go basically from nowhere to 90% saturation in 20 years. The only thing I could compare it to today is perhaps the internet. Exactly. Mm -hmm. That's what I was thinking, too. Mm -hmm. I mean, 20 years ago, it was sort of like, you know, the early adopters had it, and then, you know, it's just become so mainstream, and now we can't even really think about life without the web. There were a couple other tech changes that I just wanted to mention. In 1951, the country was crossed by coaxial cable, which allowed transmissions from the West Coast, but also just the East Coast shows to move West. Also, we're speaking about the shows that were made in New York City. There were shows, of course, made elsewhere in the country and out in Hollywood as well. And in fact, today, you know, the majority of shows originate from Hollywood. However, that wasn't really the case in the 1950s because of this sort of animosity toward the television business by the film business. And stars didn't really want to appear on these tiny little, tiny little TV sets. You also still had Broadway being a, a huge force. And so a lot of celebrities stayed in New York City. Big stars had such cultivated images in mm-hmm. a way that are more defined by their studios back then than they do today. Right. And Con- right. controlled. You know, so they could appear on Broadway and they could appear in film and they could control those images. But with TV, 
it was always going to be kind of small. At least in these days, it was black and white, and often it was an inferior image. So it just didn't make them look terrific. And so because of that, a lot of film stars from the 1950s who did make it onto TV were considered either has-beens or sort of B-list film actors. Or it was a really big deal. Right. Give me an example of some of the things. I mean, we're going to talk about specific shows here that are filmed right. in New York, but give me some idea of the other types of things that were might have been on television in the late 40s, 1950s here. In this early golden age, there were many live dramas, uh, such as Goodyear Playhouse, Playhouse 90, and others. There was a lot of comedy. Remember that these were the same networks that had giant radio networks. So they were bringing over and experimenting by bringing over a lot of their stars from radio to TV and a lot of the same kinds of shows as well. But some of those didn't work as well. Sure. And then TV had its own unique characteristics that worked really well in, in terms of comedy the situation comedy was born that relied heavily on slapstick and sight gags and things like that, which could never have worked on on radio. Well, comedy thrived far more than dramas did when they were made the transfer because a lot of it, of course, was physical humor. Right. You could like, finally think see about it. I Love Lucy. You know, right. that would not have worked on the radio. No. <laughs> <laughs> so, so we had a lot of comedy. And then, of course, the talk show. And those had been on radio. But this was a chance to see big personalities and because New York was the center of it, celebrities could walk off the stage in Broadway and into a television mm-hmm. studio and sit down for a talk show. And then, of course, there's the game show, which we'll get to in, in a few <laughs> minutes. But that's the end of my overview. Greg, why don't you actually take us someplace? Why don't I take us to probably what is the most important building to the golden age of television in New York? We're going to start at the top, Ooh. so to so to speak. And I bet you can guess where that's going to be. Old 30 Rock, 30 Rockefeller Plaza, the RCA building in particular that's located in Rockefeller Center. The same building that we talked about in the last episode and that we talked about in the radio show. Not for nothing, they almost called this place Radio City. In fact, Radio City Music Hall is across the street. The RCA building itself was completed in 1933. It's 70 stories, and today it's still one of New York City's tallest buildings. We will be concerned mostly with the floors of the main tenant, which was the Radio Corporation of America, or RCA, and its television counterpart, the National Broadcasting Company, or NBC. So in the 1940s, it's not surprising to hear that most of these floors were exclusively devoted to just radio. I have a wonderful little anecdote to start this off with. A young man by the name of Bob Keeshan arrived at the RCA building on one day in the early 1940s to interview for a job as page boy. Looking back at this, he said, quote, the whole building was devoted to radio. No one believed that television would ever become a major force for a long time to come. Now, Mr. Keishan, of course, would later become known as TV's Captain Kangaroo. Really? Yes. Now, he was also broadcasting from New York. Yes. So Bob Keeshan did get that job as a page boy. One day, he was discovered by a television show creator by the name of Bob Smith, who looked at Bob Keeshan and said, you would make a wonderful clown uh, for my brand new TV show. Which is a compliment, I suppose, Uh, to work at RCA. In in these days. So Bob Keeshan, the future Captain Kangaroo, here in the early 1940s, then became Clarabelle the Clown for this new television show that was being produced 
called Howdy Doody. Wow. Now, Howdy Doody was one of the first great television successes produced here in Studio 3K. Would that be on the third floor? Yes. If you don't, if you're not familiar with the show, it's essentially a a Western themed marionette um, that performed for children. It was a children's show with a bunch of wacky things that happened. He had 48 freckles on his face to reflect the 48 states of the United States. Oh, I didn't um, realize that. Who was created by Frank Paris from his apartment downtown in the West Village. I believe on, on Gay Street, right? On Gay Street. We talked about that in a Halloween episode. Yes, once very creepy things happened in his house. Yes, that was a haunted building. The show was to debut on December 27th, 1947. At the time, it was called Puppet Playhouse. However, on that day, unfortunately, there was a massive snowstorm. In fact, do you know how massive? It was the Great Blizzard of 1947, the worst blizzard to hit New York since the Great Blizzard of 1888. Oh, my. So a huge, huge snowstorm hit on the day that they were supposed to make their debut. All the puppets froze. Yeah, 26 inches in Central Park. That's how crazy it was. So, But eight children managed to make it to the studio. Um, So the studio audience comprised of eight kids who were able to get to Rock Center, who didn't make it, unfortunately was Howdy Doody, for Paris was still working on the marionette and was still trying to get it right, and so didn't make it to the studio. So Bob Smith performed as Buffalo Bob, who was the host of the show, and there were other performers on at that time, including Prince Mandez, the magician, and a rollicking performance by the performing poodles of the Gaudschmidt brothers. So, the, so these eight children wow. being broadcast live. Um, oh, that sounds amazing. Were there any puppets at this playhouse? There were none at this time. There were poodles. But they kept promoting Howdy Doody. And so... Bob eventually, I mean, he, the puppet didn't show up. So Bob eventually said, well, he's a little too shy to come out. So the oh. camera zoomed in on a drawer. And so Bob Smith threw his voice in the voice that would become Howdy Doody and said, I'm too bashful to come out of the drawer. And so he never came out. They're like, well, he can't come out this week. So, But that was Howdy Doody's official Debut. Debut. And he didn't even show up for the first show because of this great blizzard. Up in Studio 3K. 3K. Eventually, it would move all around the building. Uh, It would eventually move to 6B. 6B probably is one of the greatest rooms and greatest studios in this building. Today, 6B is the home of Late Night with Jimmy Fallon. Uh Uh-huh. So Jimmy broadcast from the former Howdy Doody studio? Oh, yes, but many, a great many things have performed through, through 6B. I should step back a little bit before I introduce the next star of 6B, because although there are several million televisions throughout the United States by mm. this time, TV production budgets themselves just still weren't that high. So they, what they did is they relied on product sponsors to produce whole programs, right? which is, you know... Sometimes taking the name of the sponsor as the name of the show. Absolutely. So what you had was a sort of a little bit outsized influence by Madison Avenue and advertisers at this time. So you had a real connection with all of these major ad agencies on Madison Avenue and the studios here at 30 Rock. It's really fun to, to watch these old shows. And you can see many of these on 
YouTube. And it's amazing to see and kind of humorous and strange, actually, to see how they incorporate the names of these sponsors all the time. Or they'll just stop in the middle of the show and start talking about their sponsor or the sponsor's name will be hanging over them or underneath you know, well, the microphone or whatever. Yeah, I mean, at NBC alone, they would have the Colgate Comedy Hour, right. the Gillette Cavalcade of Sports, the Craft Television Theater, and then you would have my favorite over at ABC, the U.S. Steel Theater Guild. <laughs> Which it, sounds- just, it sounds like a blast. <laughs> so, but perhaps the most popular example of this was here at 6B, with the debut in September of 1948 of the Texaco Star Theater. Texaco, of course, being a motor oil. The host of the Texaco Star Theater was Milton Berle, and is one of the, is considered one of the first great television stars to be created by the medium. It featured a hilariously wacky theme song. Oh, we're the men of Texaco. We work from Maine to Mexico. There's nothing like the Texaco of ours. Our show tonight is powerful. We'll wow you with an hour full of howls from a shower full of stars. We're the merry Texaco men. Tonight we may be showmen. Tomorrow we'll be servicing your cars. Now, so this is sort of the old way in which television sponsors would get in on the TV game. But the problem is they really controlled the content of uh, these television programs. And who didn't like that, of course, was David Sarnoff, the head right. of NBC. So with his eye for talent, he uh, brought in an innovative program director by the name of Pat Weaver, who eventually became the chairman of the board of NBC and ushered in many of the great famous shows here. He's also credited, though, with the creation of the modern television commercial. Although TV ads had been around since the experimental days, what he sort of came upon, instead of having products sponsor whole shows in which they controlled the content, he thought about selling individual chunks within the show Mm -hmm. to various advertisers you know, 30 seconds or one minute at a time so that NBC could take back the control of their own programming. And take back the name of the show, too. So you didn't have to give it away. And products themselves could then flock to actual TV shows that were getting high ratings. Uh So they they weren't just strapped with one show that they had to, like, help get good ratings. They could just have someone else do that job and then they could latch upon it. And so Pat Weaver, there are two major creations of Pat Weaver that really helped define the golden age of television. But I should add that he also created something else called Sigourney Weaver. His daughter, the film star, was Sigourney Weaver, star of Aliens, Working Girl. Wow, so she was really brought up with like TV and entertainment in her blood, right, in, in the, her it, DNA. Yes, I mean, in the heart of it. I mean, her father, in January of 1952, a Pat Weaver creation debuted called The Today Show. Uh-huh. Um, and originally, it was a three-hour show that was only seen in the East and Central Standard Time. It had the same kind of lineup a little bit that it does today. Its original host was named Dave Garraway. News, light features... But its original ratings weren't that great. He wasn't driving audiences to turn on the TV in the morning. You know, people... This would be a cultural... Yeah. This would be a cultural change to get people to actually flip it on in the morning. So I think that we can credit the creation of morning television to Dave's co-host 
a French Cameroon chimpanzee by the name of J. Fred Muggs. So this chimpanzee who would wear a diaper and he would he, he would appear in scenes with Dave and sort of create this comedic, wacky, chaotic scene in the mornings <laughs> that people would, would die to, to tune to tune into. Irresistible. You know? And then later they would bring in Fred Muggs female companion, Phoebe BBB. <laughs> <laughs> so, so J. Fred Muggs and Phoebe BBB would be early television stars of the non-human variety. Aping for the cameras. The Today Show was originally broadcast at the RCA Exhibition Hall. If you're, you know, if you're out there walking around, it's on 49th Street opposite the south entrance of 30 Rock, uh, where the Christie's Auction House is ah, today. Gotcha. Now, today's... Which is t- attached to today's Today Show. Right. So, in, in an essence, they've actually brought it back to where it used to be. So, that, so today the Today Show broadcasts from where it used to broadcast in the early days. And so it, And it's been there for almost 20 years. But when it was in there at the beginning, it was on the street level or it was inside a studio? No, it was on street level. Oh, yes. interesting. By the way, I mean, so many of these stars that we've talked about have passed away today. But Fred Muggs and Phoebe BBB are still alive. Really? Like any great retirees, they moved down to Florida. So they're still with us. Wow. They're feeling a bit cagey. <laughs> They've traded bananas for oranges. They have. So if there's a Today Show, there must, there must be. be a Tonight Show. And that was... a Pat Weaver's other great invention in 1954 is when it debuted, also in Studio 6B, so where Texaco Star was and where Jimmy Fallon is today. And its hosts throughout the years were Steve Allen, Ernie Kovacs, Jack Parr, and of course, in 1962, a young broadcaster from Iowa named Johnny Carson. So when Johnny started hosting the show, the show was still being broadcast from New York City. Right, at that time. And it, it would, of course, during his duration, during this during the 1960s when he would move out to Burbank. Burbank. Right. Now, I have two little asides because we've been talking about a lot of important men in broadcasting, but there's two very curious and interesting women that are associated with The Tonight Show that I wanted to mention. Now, when Pat Weaver created The Tonight Show, it was actually sort of spawned from an earlier show that had been created in 1950 called Broadway Open House. And Steve Allen was the host of that. That's how they carried him over to The Tonight Show a few years later. So Steve Allen's co-host, if you will, for Broadway Open House, was a woman with one name. Her name was Dagmar, a buxom blonde of the sort of stereotypical variety of the 1950s. You know, this kind of stereotype that others like Marilyn Monroe would try to break from, uh, this sort of image, if you can picture this hourglass image. Dagmar, would, she would simply sit on a stool and she would act like a dumb blonde. She would say ridiculous things that then Steve Allen would play off of. She actually became a big star in her own right. She eventually spun off into her own television show called Dagmar's Canteen. Oh, how did that do? <laughs> Just she would perform with military men. She would perform oh. songs with them. It didn't last that long. And but sit she, on a stool. And I sit suppose. on a stool, of course, and sort of laugh and giggle. But she was so popular that she actually appeared on the cover of Life magazine, which was, of course, the biggest magazine of the 1950s, and considered one of the first big female stars 
And then quickly, the other female star was an audience member. So during Steve Allen's years of The Tonight Show here at uh, 6B, he would have this regular audience member who would be there all the time named Lillian Miller. And so she would appear so often, like she just spent her whole day going to all of these uh, shoots, all of these television production shoots. She would appear so often on The Tonight Show that she became a sort of a regular that Steve Allen would speak to back and forth. And then, of course, to the preceding hosts, including Johnny Carson. So Miss Miller became a comic foil in the audience. And in fact, when television moved out to Los Angeles, including Johnny Carson, she too moved out there. She would even appear on The Carol Burnett Show. And Miss Miller and Carol Burnett would have a little back and forth. Wow. So, I mean, just another... So she was like a professional audience member. (laughs) This was an era where new celebrities and new jobs were being produced out of nothing. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly... Patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states in Canada where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. So the Tonight Show with these various hosts was broadcast from studio, you said 6? 6B. 6B. So that's up on the sixth floor. But I think that there are a couple other notable... Uh, studios here. I, I'm sorry, I totally forgot. I mean, b- before we move on, I should quickly m- mention 8H, 
which is was the largest radio studio in the world back when it was just for radio, and was the home to Arturo Toscanini and the NBC Symphony Orchestra, who performed here for many years. Just a, probably a quarter of a century later, in 1975, Saturday Night Live would move into that very studio and is there to this day. So that ends my tale of 30 Rock here. Where is our next destination in Midtown? Well, why don't we head over to 54th Street and Broadway? So not very far away. We're going to CBS Studio 52, the building at 254 West 54th Street. I need to talk a little bit about that before we get into Studio 52. And there's some confusion. Why is it Studio 52 52 if it's on 54th Street? Right, of course. Mm -hmm. Well, we'll clear that up in a second. But this theater was originally built as the Gallo Opera House in 1927. This theater was built by the Italian entrepreneur Fortune Gallo to house his San Carlo Opera Company, which he he (laughs) opened up in New York hoping to compete with the Metropolitan Opera. So this theater opened with a production of La Boheme in 1927 and seriously flopped. He changed it after trying a couple other operas. They didn't work. He changed it to the Gallo Theater. But everything seemed to be cursed. Everything flopped, including the biggest failure, which was Oscar Hammerstein's much-hyped 1928 follow-up to Showboat, which called Rainbow, which was a musical that was set in the Gold Rush. Opening night, the show was a complete wreck, and to add insult to injury, a donkey named Fanny (laughs) went to the bathroom on stage during a love scene. So what you're getting at is this the space has um, a lot of associations with failure. Right. (laughs) Physically produced on stage by a donkey. By Fanny. And the depression just drove Fortune to despair, Mm -hmm. um, ironically. And he would sell it in 1930. And then in 1940, it closed its doors and sat empty for a few years until in 1943, CBS, going on a purchasing spree, snatched it up to become CBS Radio Playhouse number four. So it was a radio theater. So, and you said in 1943. So, if I recall from our last show, their television production was at that time at Grand Central. Right. Though this was for radio. But this was for radio. Okay, right. gotcha. It wasn't until after the war that they repurposed this for television and it became CBS Radio Playhouse number four and then later Studio 52. So why Studio 52 if it's on 54th Street? Just a coincidence, Greg, because CBS names their studios sequentially. So it was the 52nd studio that they had built. And Studio 52 would remain a TV studio for many decades up into the 1970s. Great shows were produced here, including I've Got a Secret, The Jack Benny Show, even Captain Kangaroo was produced here. Oh, really? That's excellent. Two of them that I wanted to focus on, however, are What's My Line and The $64,000 Question. So the, t- so the two greatest game shows of the 1950s were broadcast from here, from 54th Street. And amazingly, at overlapping times. So, you know, these were versatile stages with versatile staff <laughs> sure. who could have What's My Line broadcast on Sunday night and then The $64,000 Question broadcast on Tuesday night. Mm-hmm. 
these are two very different kinds of game shows. What's My Line was a panel discussion and game show where $64,000 question was the first in a big money series of shows that would be broadcast. We had actual contestants that were like like not famous people, right? right? They were looking to make a lot of money and they would win big amounts of money. But What's My Line, uh, I think, is a really fun show to watch today. And again, mm-hmm. I've passed a couple really enjoyable evenings recently watching <laughs> old episodes of What's My Line. The basic concept was that there was a panel of celebrities and they they were very polite and very classy with each other. But the point of the show was that they would have to guess the profession or the line, if you will, of a mystery guest. So somebody would come out sign in, and then on the screen and in the studio audience, you would see what this person's profession was. And the celebrity panelists would then ask questions one at a time, questions that could be answered yes or no to this guest trying to determine what their profession was. One of the episodes I saw, the mystery guest was the publisher of the New York City Telephone book. (laughs) And so Arlene Francis and Bennett Cerf were asking these really questions that could be taken in a very funny way. You know, like, do you wear your product? Uh, Is your product for entertainment value, etc.? For every no answer that they got, the mystery guest received $5. And when they got (laughs) up to $50, you see, this was not a high money show. (laughs) Right, right. The mystery guest had won the show. Uh, Well, the game itself sounds besides the point. It sounds like what they're trying is just to capture this a party atmosphere of, of uh, oh, yeah. you it know like, it was a parlor game it was like a televised version of Dorothy Parker and the round table in a oh, strange yeah. way with a game attached right, to it right because they were very sophisticated and the things that they made they made lots of little puns with each other so that was what's my line it was a huge success the show was sponsored by Stopette deodorant <laughs> And which is hilarious because like in front of the panel, you know, underneath where they were sitting, there was a big like spray bottle Mm -hmm. of Stopette and they would just stop the show to (laughs) to talk about Stopette deodorant. They'd have a glamorous woman, you know, come out and like push the little pump. Yeah. Well, it's like American Idol when they have those gigantic Coca-Cola cups in front of them and they could probably have used some deodorant on that show. (laughs) I'm sure they could have. So... What's My Line is sort of the, the standard bearer of old style of game show, which is celebrity-based, this panel of celebrities. Right. Whereas the second show you're about to talk about is really the model of the modern game show, where it involves contestants vying for a large sum of money. Right, because $50 or whatever was <laughs> not going to help you out that much. The $64,000 question was a totally different kind of show. It transformed television game shows, and it was broadcast here from 1955 to 1958 on CBS on Tuesdays from 10 to 10.30 p.m. These shows were so late. Yeah. You know? It's incredible. The, what's my line? 10.30 as mm-hmm. well? But as you said, there were normal people on the $64,000 question who could make a lot of money. And this worked very well for ratings. It was a smash. It was more popular than I Love Lucy. Basically, the contestant would answer questions for each one that they got right. The the pot doubled. On his march to the $64,000 question. The greatest name in cosmetics presents the one, two, four. 
$64,000 question. It would start at $64, then go to $128, $512, $1,000, $2,000, $4,000, So, like, who wants to be a millionaire, kind a of? A complete yeah. copy. Really, really. <laughs> uh-huh. Who Wants to Be a Millionaire was modeled after the same show. Wow. It was hosted by Hal March, who had been on the George Burns and Gracie Allen show, with Lynn Dollar as his assistant. <laughs> and Wendy Berry did live Revlon ads, including the living lipstick. So... <laughs> And they obviously wanted women to watch the show if they have living lipstick being oh, making right. appearances. And everybody watched the show. Even President Eisenhower didn't want to be disturbed while it was on the air. Charles Revson, who was the head of Revlon, inserted himself really into the selection of uh, the contestants and into the questions and the categories that were selected for these contestants, which was supposed to be random. And this is where we get into a little bit of into the dicey situation that the $64,000 question was really marred by. Mm -hmm. And meanwhile, there was another television show at the same time called 21. Which was also extremely popular, from what I know. And it really blasted off, and it gave out even more money. In fact, in 1958, Charles Van Doren won $129,000. Imagine how much money that was. Yeah, that's really, that's a large sum. That would be a large sum today to win from a game show. Right. Unfortunately, the guy he kicked off started talking to investigators, which started an entire investigation into that. Other shows, including the $64,000 question, 21 was rigged. So when this all blew up, and it did blow up, and it's chronicled uh, and portrayed in the 1994 movie Quiz Show, when it blew up, it really meant the end of a certain era in television, including an end of these big money, big cash game shows, and the end of direct manipulation by the advertisers. Well, a little bit of innocence is lost here because then the the, the audience trust has been betrayed here right. in a way that, that people weren't used to because this was such a new medium, of course. So these two iconic game shows were broadcast from Studio 52 here on 54th Street. Right. And CBS would continue to use this studio through the 1970s And they sold off this theater, which would become the next year, the great famous Studio 54 nightclub. Wow. So all of that happened. Everything that you have just described has happened in this building before Andy Warhol and all the party greats funneled through here as Studio 54. That's incredible. That is correct. And then later it would become the Roundabout Theater. It would go back to legit. Well, I'm going to talk about another theater that's very close by. However, this one is no longer with us. It's of, the, of the four buildings that we're talking about, this one is no longer there. It's at 152 West 54th Street between 6th Avenue and 7th Avenue. Okay. Now, this was, like the Gallo, an unimpressive theatrical stage when it opened in 1928. So it had a couple decades of theatrical productions, and in 1950, it was converted into a television production studio for DuMont Television Studios. Now, DuMont was basically the third network back in the days, right before ABC was just starting to get its legs here. Their main studios were at 515 Madison, which is today called the DuMont Building, um, as well as having television studios down at Wanamaker's at Astor Place. Now, Dumont Filmed has a wide variety of different shows which have been lost to the mists of time, including Ted Max 
Amateur Hour, which was sort of a, a precursor to American Idol and America's Got Talent, where contestants uh, who had talents would spin a wheel and then perform, and people would send in their postcards of the ones that they liked, oh, um, wow. which was interesting. Slow moving, but it, I, <laughs> a very slow moving fun. show. Also, Dumont is responsible for one of the first science fiction television shows with Captain Video and his Video Rangers. But perhaps the two best known shows of the Dumont years were broadcast here at the Adelphi Theater. The first show, and this is perhaps one of the most surprising television ratings hits, was a show called Life is Worth Living. It was a program that was hosted by the Catholic Bishop Fulton Sheen from its uh, debut in 1952 to 1955 when he would move on to another network. Bishop Sheen was this incredibly striking, hypnotic figure. He would wear thick Catholic robes, and he would mount the stage of the Adelphi, um, which would be set up like a study or an office. He would basically walk in, and he would there would be a live studio audience, and he would lecture to the camera on basic moral issues of the day. You may recall a few years ago there was a story going around with this effect about a little girl was told by her parents to pray because there had been so many misfortunes and sufferings in the family. And so the little child prayed and said, Dear Lord, my brother has the mumps. My sister fell off a bicycle and broke her leg. And my older brother has pneumonia. And Daddy lost his job. So, dear God, please take care of yourself because if anything happens to you, we'll all be in the soup. And then, you know, to illustrate some of the things he was talking about, he would go to a chalkboard and he would write on the chalkboard. It sounds extremely <laughs> wholesome. This was the extent of the show. I mean, it's, inc- it's incredible to think that there was so little stimulus going on. There was just a, a bishop speaking to the camera, and it was a runaway success. Well, it sounds like that show was worth watching. The show was so huge, in fact, that there was a sort of friendly rivalry between Sheen and the Texaco Star Theater. Milton Berle would often tell many jokes at Bishop Sheen's expense. I hope you put photos on the blog. Oh, yeah. I've, there's many uh, videos on YouTube uh, to just get a taste of this, uh, of this gentleman. He's fascinating. But the greatest show of, in Adelphi and, and in Dumont history centered around a native Brooklynite who was born in Bushwick named John Herbert Gleason and born in 1916. He worked his way up through pool halls into the world of vaudeville and eventually got into some early Hollywood films. Early on, even as a young lad, he earned a reputation as being a bit of a partier. If you want to like take a detour from our little walking tour here, head over to 51 West 51st Street, so just three blocks away. This was one of John Herbert Gleason, a.k.a. Jackie Gleason, one of his favorite hangouts. It was Toot Shore's Restaurant. Um, he would basically, after filming, he would go here, he would drink all day, he would go take a nap and come back to Toot Shore and drink some more. Um, did you say it's Toot Shore's? Oh, Toots, Toots Shore. The proprietor's name was Toots. Somehow through this haze Back of... Back when proprietors <laughs> were named Toots. <laughs> yes. Somehow through the boozing, he became a major star, thanks to an early television show called The Life of Riley. But he eventually received his own show, thanks to Dumont, who snatched him up and gave him the studio here at Adelphi, and was soon the host of a new show called The Cavalcade of Stars, because that's what they called shows back then, a cavalcade <laughs> of show- with com- comedic skits that were sandwiched between... 
lavish musical numbers. So he would get his own show here called the Jackie Gleason Show. And during that show, he created a very popular character, that of Ralph Cramden, mm-hmm. the you know rough and tumble bus driver, and his long suffering wife Alice, and best friend Ed Norton. This character that was on the Jackie Gleason show became so popular that it spun out into its own show in 1955. Here's what I think is really interesting about this is because Dumont is no longer with us today. This is actually sort of the end of the Dumont era here. But in 1955, they actually developed a new camera process by which live shows could be recorded mm-hmm. finally and then printed onto film. So in fact, we can say that these... These shows weren't just broadcast. They were actually filmed. Jackie decided to use this process for the Honeymooners show. And it's for this reason that all 39 episodes of the original Honeymooners show, they were filmed and we still have them today. Mm-hmm. So many other shows were also very popular this, at this time. Completely lost. Are completely lost. It's because of Dumont who then went out of business. And so the Honeymooners was broadcast on Dumont. was broadcast originally on Dumont, filmed on this Dumont stage, yes. A funny little location snafu about the Honeymooners, which I find is very funny. The show is set at 328 Chauncey Street in Bensonhurst, Mm -hmm. okay? However, there really is a 328 Chauncey Street in Brooklyn, but it's in Bed-Stuy, which is several miles away from Bensonhurst. And in fact, is actually close to where Jackie Gleason was born. Interesting. The Honeymoon is really is the best thing that the DuMont network ever produced. I think it's very few people would argue with that. Unfortunately, DuMont is on its way out by this time. ABC, which is a fledgling network, was actually purchased by a movie chain, a movie theater chain called the United Paramount Theaters, and fusing them with a lot of money so that they were able to create better shows and like and get more affiliates and thus crowning Dumont out of a lot of markets. Its final show, by the way, because I wanted to mention this because it's so similar to What's My Line, it was a it was their final show was called What's the Story? which was a panel game show featuring New York newspaper journalists who had to guess major news events of the day based on clues that were provided by the hosts. Oh, interesting. <laughs> it's like, wait, wait, don't tell me. This didn't save Dumont. They ended almost entirely broadcasting by 1956. Mm-hmm. Now, I wanted to mention, because I keep saying The Honeymooners is the greatest show of the golden age, whatever. Of course, some would argue, of course, Fairly, that I Love Lucy. I was going to bring up Lucy because I think she beat him out in the ratings, didn't she? Yeah, I mean, like, I love, love Lucy. Lucy yeah. um, what's interesting, though, is I Love Lucy begins a grand tradition of shows that are set in New York City, but are filmed in Los Angeles. So it's like this grand tradition from I Love Lucy up to Mad Men. You know, shows that aren't made in New York, but are set in New York. In fact, I Love Lucy is set in the Upper East Side at 623 East 68th Street is where they lived. So you've left us on 54th Street between 6th and 7th, Mm -hmm. which puts us in a very easy position to get back over to Broadway, Walk, Mm -hmm. walk back over. Sorry that we're like bouncing back and forth <laughs> along 54th Street. Who knew we were going to be on 54th yeah. Street so much? But 54th and Broadway, between 53rd and 54th, in fact, is the Ed Sullivan Theater, which is the last stop on our tour today. The building, 1697 Broadway, is a 1,200-seat theater originally at the base of a 13-story building. 
It was built in the mid-1920s by Arthur Hammerstein and named after his father, Oscar Hammerstein I. Anyway, Hammerstein went bankrupt in 1931, and the building changed hands and even became, like so many others around here, a nightclub uh, before CBS bought it, too, up as a radio studio. In 1950, it was converted to a television studio and changed its name to CBS TV Studio 50. Okay. Meanwhile, downtown, CBS had started broadcasting a show called Toast of the Town, which was a weekly variety show hosted by the rather unlikely Ed Sullivan. Mm -hmm. Um, The show was broadcast from the Maxine Elliott Theater at 109 West 39th Street in Broadway, which is no longer there, and it's been replaced by an office. A Starbucks, a Staples. I think it's a coffee bean. Oh, okay. Well, that's much better. Why was Ed Sullivan an unlikely choice? Well, he had an interesting stage presence, namely none. (laughs) Many (laughs) many of his critics would charge. Ed Sullivan's stage presence was sometimes woody. He would sort of bungle up lines. He would introduce people with the wrong names and, and so on. But I think he was very likely because he was an impresario who just loved New York theater. He loved the entertainment business. He loved nightlife. He was a real bon vivant, Mm -hmm. um, which I I didn't know that about him before. He was born in 1901 in Harlem to Elizabeth and Peter Sullivan. In the 1920s, he started hosting a radio show about theater, and he had all kinds of personalities on his show. So here's Ed Sullivan with this show, talking to people like Jack Benny, Mm -hmm. Irving Berlin, Jimmy Durante, you know... In the 1920s. So in 1931, he got a big break when the columnist Walter Winchell, who was super famous, probably the most famous uh, columnist, and he'd Mm -hmm. make a great podcast, Mm -hmm. by the way, left the New York Daily News, and Sullivan stepped up uh, and started covering theater and and society in a column that they ran called Little Old New York. By the way, I love that, like, from this example and several others that we've listed, that being a journalist in New York is one easy way to get on television. <laughs> right. right. But, well, they had to have people who knew how to talk and talk and talk mm-hmm. and talk and talk. <laughs> so he covered theater and gossip. That's, that is surprising for a man so serious and stern as Ed Sullivan. But he wasn't serious or stern at all. He made the El Morocco nightclub, his sort Mm. of headquarters, Mm -hmm. back in the days of Cafe Society. It was on the south side of 54th Street between Lex and 3rd Avenue. Oh, yeah, a a great hangout of Humphrey Bogart, actually. And he would continue this column of his throughout the rest of his life. By this point, Ed's all about town. He's got a popular gossip and entertainment column, and he basically knows everybody. So even though I said he was the unlikely host, he was a completely likely. Now host. it seems very obvious that he would be a like he would bring entertainment to the masses on a national level. In 1948, CBS decided to launch their own variety show because everybody was. Um, theirs was called Toast of the Town, and they turned to Ed. So the first show was on June 20th, 1948. The show moved up to CBS Studio 50 in 1953, and. Two years later, in 1955, would be officially renamed The Ed Sullivan Show. Except for a different slot on Sunday night its first year, it ran from 8 p.m. to 9 p.m. From 1949 
1971. That's it quite is quite a run. The most successful variety show or show of its kind ever. And all in this theater. It's starting in 1953. Mm-hmm. Yes, in this theater. So what types of entertainers? I mean, I you know, I certainly know a couple most famous Ed Sullivan performances, but it must have I mean for that many shows, he must have had a gamut. And for those decades, mm-hmm. yeah, no, he really he brought uh, Broadway performers, opera, classical music, but also comedy, popular music, lots of popular music, mm-hmm. dance, circus acts, <laughs> puppets, dramatic acting, all of these things onto his show. It's almost a cliche because I read it from so many different sources that Sullivan became the arbiter, arbiter, arbiter is used okay. everywhere, of popular culture for an entire nation. And Sunday night from 8 to 9 p.m. for decades found millions of American families sitting around their TV sets and waiting to see who Sullivan was going to present to them next. Now, yesterday and today, our theater's been jammed with newspapermen and hundreds of photographers from all over the nation. And these veterans agree with me that the city never has witnessed the excitement stirred by these youngsters from Liverpool who call themselves the Beatles. Now, tonight, you're going to twice be entertained by them. Right now and again in the second half of our show, ladies and gentlemen... The Beatles! And the list of people he presented is massive, but it includes breakout performances by some of the most famous musical acts of the 1950s and 60s, including, of course, Elvis Presley, The Beatles, The Beach Boys, The Supremes, Jackson 5, Rolling Stones, Mamas and Papas, The Doors, Janis Joplin. I mean, your head spins looking at this I mean, people consider the Beatles' appearance on the Ed Sullivan to be one of the greatest cultural moments in American history. I mean, that's a a pretty sizable accomplishment. And when you say appearance, we should say appearances, because they appeared three consecutive weeks in February of 1964— but back in 56, of course, was Elvis's first appearance on September 9th. Sullivan, interestingly, was not there. Did you know that? He, he had been uh, in a pretty serious life-threatening car accident up in Connecticut. And Charles Lawton was both the host, the guest host, and the main guest. <laughs> so, so he did his own thing and then introduced Elvis Presley. In fact, calling him Elvin Presley. <laughs> But Elvin didn't seem to mind. He was no, very Elvin was very accommodating, uh, yeah. <laughs> gracious. And Elvis received a record sixty million viewers at the time, which was eighty-two point six percent of anybody watching TV at that time. So essentially, like a Super Bowl is today, like that kind of dominance of the marketplace. And in 1968, his sort of crowning achievement was when the theater was renamed the Ed Sullivan Theater in celebration of the 20th anniversary of the show. So then, what happened next? Well, the nation's taste Mm -hmm. shifted. Things started to lag already for him in viewership in the later 60s. And by the early 1970s, this kind of variety show was seeming a little bit passe. A little old-fashioned, yeah. And the demographic was skewing very old, or too old for the taste, of the advertisers. So CBS did something that I had never heard of. Uh, But in the 1970-1971 season, they did something called the Rural Purge. It's referred to (laughs) as the Rural Purge. The Rural Juror. Not the Rural Juror, (laughs) but the Rural Purge. purge, In which many, many of their shows that had kind of rural or folksy themes were axed. Hmm. All in the same year or within about two years of each other. So many of these had uh, rural characters like Green Acres, Lassie, Beverly Hillbillies. All of those were canceled at the same time. Wow. 
some other shows that were kind of associated with that same genre, like the Jackie Gleason show, Ed Sullivan and Lawrence Welk, next, same time. So this is really, there was like a dramatic shift all at once, not just by CBS, also by other networks. And new shows came out like the Mary Tyler Moore show, All in the Family. They took the place of many of these Beverly Hillbillies, Petticoat Junction type shows. They had urban sensibilities. They were set in cities. But more positively, there were a lot of them were focused on women or women had greater roles in these types of shows than they did in the past. Oh, and many of these shows are actually quite, quite yeah. a bit better uh, right. than what they replaced. <laughs> mm-hmm. During the 70s, the $10,000 Pyramid would be broadcast from this theater. From the Ed Sullivan Theater. In the 1980s, Kate and Allie taped there. <laughs> Did you wow, know that? no, I didn't. Uh, and in 1981, CBS's lease expired, but they bought it back in 1993 when David Letterman switched over from NBC to host Late Night with David Letterman and he's been there ever since. The theater now has 400 seats. So they took out a lot to put in a lot of equipment. Mm-hmm. But I mean, it's probably one of the most famous New York theaters in operation today just because of this daily exposure. I've been to the David Letterman show two times. Once I saw the very first performance of Green Day. Oh. And the second time I saw, which was amazing, like saw Bill Cosby on the wow. show and he's, he was so wacky and he'd wander around the set during the commercial breaks and everything and it's freezing oh, in there. Oh, he keeps it very cold. Yes. And you can even just hang out by the stage door. I did that when I was a student. I remember once waiting and waiting and finally Glenn Close walked out and I held <laughs> oh, on yeah. to her hand and said, Glenn, you're a star. It's like, yeah. <laughs> well, we'll leave the show there uh, looking forward towards the future for our next show next month It will just be a solo show. Tom will be away for that one. I'll talk about the 70s, 80s, and 90s in New York City and some of the incredible shows that were broadcast here during a period when Los Angeles really did have most of the television shows. But television has come back to New York, and I'll explain why. I'm so jealous that you get to do that show, Greg, and a little bit peeved that I can't be there to talk about it, including children's television workshop. Oh, and really a few fun. other interesting things. Um, Instead, I'll be visiting dozens of hotels in Paris and London uh, for Euro Cheapo, <laughs> like how I just worked that in, like a stop at deodorant oh, ad. Like, oh, that's true. I guess we are kind of like an old-time television show. Texaco Star Theater. We should have a theme song in which we sing about Euro Cheapo, just like the right. Texaco. And it's theme. living lipstick. <laughs> now we cut that. Check us. Check out our blog, BoweryBoysPodcast.com, where I will have many examples of the shows that we've talked about and many photographs of the stars as well. And if you haven't already, join us on Facebook and subscribe to our newsletter. You can just sign up through the blog or just Google Bowery Boys Newsletter. And since we are talking TV, uh, if you want to follow me on Twitter on Sunday nights, I'm tweeting along with New York history-themed television shows. I had been doing Mad Men, but that's off the air. Copper is on television now, which is set in the mid-19th century. In September, I will be following along with Boardwalk Empire. So follow me at Bowery Boys on Twitter. So thank you so much for joining us as we've sort of had a toast of the town. (laughs) Meandered through several amazing places in the era of the Golden Age. Although it might have just felt like back and forth on 54th Street. (laughs) So thanks for listening. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon.
BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.